Well, hopefully many of you were able to come this weekend to uh, the Reformation Seminar with uh, Pastor Greg and uh, just enjoy um, hearing about Martin Luther and uh, just hearing about the gospel. So those of you that were able to come and uh, participate in, in one of those those sessions, uh, hopefully you're all geared up and ready this morning uh, to hear about the good news of the gospel. Uh, and really, I think if you could encapsulate the whole Reformation in some ways down to one one sentence, it would be getting the right message is really important. Getting the right message, the right information, the right message is really, really important. I don't know if any of you have heard the name Hiru Anoda. Hopefully I'm saying that right. He's a Japanese man, Hiru Anoda. He was a soldier during World War II in the Philippines. He was stationed on the Philippines. And Hiru was sent there as an intelligence officer. And right before the U.S. attacked the Philippines to retake it, he was sent there and he was dropped off on the island with some other men. And his, his mission was to disrupt the invaders, the allied forces, and to keep them from, uh, from having success in taking over the island again. He was trying to hamper the enemy, and his mission was to do that and to not surrender and also to not take his own life. Those were, were parts of his, his command there. And so soon allied forces captured the island that he was on, and Hiru went into hiding in the jungle, determined to continue to fulfill his his mission and to do what he was there to do, what he was supposed to accomplish. Well, when the war ended in 1945, Hiru was in the jungle and he did not receive the message that the war had ended and that Japan had surrendered and lost. And so he continued to carry out raids on the local people there on the island that he was on in his military uniform. Soon the Japanese government, having surrendered, dropped leaflets on the island from the air to try to convince him to come out of hiding and that the war was over and that they had surrendered. And Hiru got the leaflets, examined them, and determined that they were propaganda from the U.S. And he didn't believe them. And so he continued fighting. And so he continued to live and exist based on the message that he had received the orders that he had received on that island for 29 years until 1974. And the only reason that he stopped fighting and came out of hiding was that his commanding officer came to the island and went out and found him and convinced him that the war is over and that he needed to give up and to come out of hiding and changed the orders that he had given to him. Now, a message is more than just a bit of information that you receive. Believing the right message and having the right set of instructions, the right message determines the course of your life in many different ways. It determines, it makes all the difference in how you live life in this world and what you do. And as the church of Jesus Christ, we have been commissioned with a message that we're supposed to proclaim in the world. And we're supposed to proclaim that message in the world as we exist as a kingdom outpost. We're here in order to convey a message to those around us. And the message that we have is powerful and it's life-changing and life-altering and it's decisive and it needs to be heard. I mean, Romans chapter 1 makes this very clear. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel 
Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so as a kingdom outpost, we have to make sure that we get this message right. I mean, that's the whole point of the Reformation. Get the message right and convey the message to those who are lost and dying in the world around us. And it's that message that we want to talk about today. And so this coincides nicely with Reformation Weekend and with the the end of our series here on the church as a kingdom outpost. The title for today that you saw is, What is Our Message? And we want to think carefully and we want to get this as clear as possible. So in order to do that this morning, there are a number of passages, obviously, that we could go to to talk about the message of the gospel. But I want you to open your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be, Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. And in this passage, Paul is talking specifically to believers. And so you're going to pick that up as we go along in Ephesians 2. And so it makes it very applicable for you and I to consider this passage. And what he does here as he's talking to believers is he describes the entire scope of our salvation of the gospel message. And he does this with what is astounding clarity and conviction. And so this is a very powerful passage, and there's no way I can do justice to this. This is one of those passages where when you study it, there's so many things I could say and so many ways to go about it. Um, you almost wilt under the, the, the pressure and the, the weight of a passage like this. So uh, we're going to do our best this morning to give you the big picture of what's happening here and, and make the gospel as clear and as compelling as we can. So as we look at this this morning, we're going to see four descriptions of every believer. All right. So we're talking to believers, but this clarifies the message For us as we go. So four descriptions of every believer that show the change that has been brought by the work of Christ. Four descriptions of every believer. And really the message of the gospel is that God changes people. He reverses our fortune. He rescues us. That is the heart. God works to change people. And you're going to see that this morning. So the first one of these descriptions is that every person in this room, if you're a believer, or if you're not, has been dead in sin. Dead in sin. And this is in verses 1 to 3. Look at verse 1 with me. You can see here, he's talking to believers, and you can see that he's describing the way that believers used to be. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. This is a past Life for believers, but this description is so important for you and I to understand. This description is true or was true of every single person in this room at one point in your life. And to understand the gospel, to get this message right, you have to understand what is going on here in verses 1 to 3. And if these, if these verses are giving us a description of our previous life, the heart of these verses, the best way to describe our previous life is found right there in verse 1. You were dead. That's reality. Spiritually dead. This is the center of how you and I used to be. And to understand what it means to be dead... 
spiritually dead, we have to think for a moment about the first few chapters of Genesis. Because that's where death is mentioned for the first time. Over and over again, in the first chapter of Genesis, God creates life. And he creates the world and everything that exists. And he calls everything that he has made good. And when Adam and Eve are placed in the garden, they are placed there spiritually alive. They're able to walk with God in the garden and have a relationship with him and enjoy his company and talk to him. And the possibility of death only comes into the picture when Adam and Eve are told that if they disobey God, this will happen to them. Listen to Genesis chapter 2. It's on the screen here. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so there's the promise of death as it comes At the very beginning, the first time it's mentioned. And of course, you know, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve do exactly what they were not supposed to do, what God had told them not to do. And I was reading it again, and I'm amazed at the language. God says, you can eat of any tree in the garden. It's all available to you. I'm not restrictive. Don't picture God that way. Enjoy the fruit of what I have created, but here's your one command. Don't eat of this tree. But they do. And they don't die physically right away, although that process begins. But what happens is that they do die spiritually. There was instant separation between their souls and God's soul. Between him and them. Relationally, they were no longer able to walk with him. They ran and they started to hide from him. And there was instant corruption and they started to blame one another. It was everybody else's fault. And in that moment, their very nature changed. Sin became easy and it became natural to them in that moment. And rather than being free to enjoy the fruits of creation fully and to have a relationship with God and to love God, now they were no longer free. Their will became enslaved to sin. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That describes the tragic results of what happened in the Garden of Eden. And we've all been impacted by Adam's decision there. And that's what Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead. You live in this reality that came into existence through the decision of Adam and Eve. And so every person born is born spiritually dead. And you're born spiritually dead because, look at verse 1... In the trespasses and sins. You're born because of your sins. It's not like you can just say, well, Adam was the one that messed up. Why do I have to suffer because of what he did? He created the process, but we all happily join into that process as well. We participated along with him in in his sin. And so we receive a sinful nature as well. And we're dead spiritually because of our transgressions and sins. I mean, you know, of sin, we missed the mark. 
We've not lived up to the standard. We've willfully chosen to shun God's word and to turn our backs on him and to go our own way. But when Paul describes this here in Ephesians 1 or in Ephesians 2, he describes us as spiritually dead and and that's bad enough. I mean, thinking about ourselves as born into this world, spiritually under judgment and unresponsive to God, that's bad enough. But he doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just say that and then move on. In verses 1 to 3, he actually fleshes out this picture of what it means to be spiritually dead. And if you think it's bad to be spiritually dead, the way he describes this is jarring at our situation that we're born into. Listen to verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I mean, there's so much in these verses. This is what I'm talking about. It's hard to get your hand, your arms around what's going on here. But let me try to break this down into three areas for you and describe what our deadness looks like. Our deadness is that we are consumed by our a worldly environment. You can see that in verse 2. You walked following the course of this world. And so our environment contributes to our sinfulness and draws it out of us even more. So it's a worldly environment. We're also under the influence of Satan. We're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and our own passions and desires and all the things that we want at the most fundamental level are disordered and corruptive. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So our system that we live in promotes sinfulness. We have an opponent that hates us and wants us to continue to exist in a state of spiritual deadness and our own desires. It's not like it's being pressed on us from the outside and we were just innocent bystanders. Our own desires and passions and deepest commitments are given over to everything that is against God. And we are bent on our own destruction. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. I was trying to think about a way to picture this for you and describe this coming together of the environment, of the leadership of Satan, and of our own desires. And here's the best thing I could come up with. The best way to picture this is to think about a mob of people. I mean, a mob sort of has its own mentality when it it gets going. But think about a mob of people, and this mob of people is rushing down the street toward the city square. And this mob of people knows that in this city square, there's a group of soldiers who are determined to keep them out of the city square and they have large guns and they're very willing to use them. But the mob doesn't care because this mob is headed toward that square with all the passion and desire and anger and lust and greed in the world. And they are bent on getting
compassion, and they're under the influence of a very powerful leader who goads them on and wants them to head to their own destruction in that city square. And so you see all three of those coming together. You have all these individual members who are driven by their own desires and they join into this mob and they think that this mob is a good thing in the end. They think, they look around and they see all these people who are headed in the same direction that they are and they look around and they think, I must be on the right path. This is healthy. This is good. I'm doing something good because of all these other people. And so all three of those elements of spiritual deadness come together and that's what it looks like to exist in this state, driven by your passions, under the influence of Satan, headed toward destruction. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. And God won't let this go unpunished. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Our nature determines that we will suffer the judgment of God in this condition. You're going to end up in that city square. You're going to end up getting taken out. Continuing in this lifestyle is a sure ticket to the full fury of God's righteous anger. That's what spiritual deadness means. And that is why we are so desperately in need of what happens next. Our second description, every believer was dead in sin and born that way. And then every believer has been made alive with Christ. If you are a believer this morning, you were born dead in your sins. And at some point in your life, everything changed. You entered into an entirely new situation because of what verses four to six describe to us. Now, One of the reasons this passage is so tough to get your arms around is because it's really only two sentences. So in Greek, verses 1 to 7 are one sentence, and then verses 8 to 10 are another sentence. And so trying to see what is the subject and the verb, you know, in elementary school, they want you to identify the subject and the verb of the sentence. It's a little tricky to figure that out in this first sentence here, but... We can do it, and the the subject and the verb of this entire sentence, all of verses 1 to 3, have led us to the main point of this sentence, and it's found in verses 4 and in verse 5. The subject is God in verse 4, and the verb is made alive. God has made you alive. That is the heart of the gospel. That's the centerpiece. That's the heart of what God does for us. He makes us alive. It's a complete reversal of our fortunes. And God is the actor. He's the one that does the work. One commentator described this change here as entering into an entirely new situation. And I, that sort of resonated with me. I loved the way that sounded. It's a new situation. Everything has changed in that moment when you've gone from spiritual deadness to being made alive by God. And I don't know if you've ever seen those videos online of people who receive cochlear implants. I don't know if you've ever watched one of those. But 
A cochlear implant is uh, something that they put behind your ear. They actually do an outpatient surgery, and they'll put something in your ear, and if your eardrum doesn't send the signal to your brain, then the cochlear implant will go in your head, and it will actually send the signal for what you're hearing to your brain. And so it's really cool because these people won't hear anything, and they'll have the surgery, and then they go back into the office, and they actually have to plug it in to the computer, and there's a moment where they flip a switch, and the person can hear. And some of those videos, if you're, if you're in the need for a good cry, you should go watch them. I watched one this week of an eight-month-old little boy, and he couldn't hear anything, and he has the surgery, and you know he's got the implant on his head, and he goes back in, and his mom is holding him there, and the doctor says, are you ready? And they say, yeah, and he flips the switch on, and she says, hi, Johnny, and his pacifier just falls out of his mouth. And he looks up at her and gets this massive smile on his face. And she just keeps talking to him. And it's unbelievable. That is an entirely new situation. I mean, that kid's eardrums were dead. He wasn't able to hear music. He wasn't able to hear anything. And in that moment, he was given life. Now he enters a whole new world. His entire existence has changed. And a whole new reality has been created for that kid. And if that's true of someone who can now hear physically, how much more true is that of you and I when we go from spiritual deadness to being made alive? When our situation was wrapped up in verses 1 to 3, and now we're given life Now we can hear the word of God and we can understand it. Everything changes in that moment. Now, why would God do this? What led him to make dead people who are part of this mob? What led him to pluck them out of that and give them spiritual life? Look at verses four and five. But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So all of that is is preparing you for the main verb, right? God is rich in mercy. He has great love for us. Even when you were dead, here's what he did. He made us alive together with Christ. And throughout this section, you're going to see descriptions of God of his disposition toward us as sinners. Words like mercy and love, great love and grace. And all of those character qualities are what led him to act, what led him to make us alive spiritually. But you have to make sure that you get something right here. You see, the death of Christ did not secure the love of God for us. It's not like Christ died and convinced God to love us. God sent Jesus to earth because of the great love with which he loved us. Sending Christ to earth was the the way in which he secured our salvation. Jesus didn't convince God that you and I were somehow worthy of affection. God loves us because of who he is and because we are his creation. And so his love is the very reason that he sent Jesus to die for us. 
The entire plan of salvation rises out of God's great love that he had in eternity past for us. And it's God's great love that led to a core aspect of this change. And this is what I want to highlight for you this morning. Look at verse 5 where it says we've been made alive. What does it say? We've been made alive together with Christ. Now look at verse 6. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so you, you see this movement here from being made alive to being raised up to being seated in the heavenly places. And it's the same movement that happened to Jesus Christ. He was raised from the dead. He was ascended to the Father. And now he is seated with the Father in a place of authority. And as Paul is describing that, he keeps using these words, with, in, And why he's doing that is because he wants to highlight our union with Jesus Christ. None of this happens. You are not made alive. You are not raised up with him. You are not exalted with Christ unless you are united to him. Unless you are joined to Jesus. All the the benefits of your salvation come to you because of this doctrine, because you're in Christ, because you're covered by him, because you're united to him. So whatever happens to him happens to you. That's the core of our salvation. That's how you're made alive because you're united to him. I figured it would be good to include a Martin Luther quote this morning. But look how he describes this. Through faith in Christ, Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness, and all that he has becomes ours. Rather, he himself becomes ours. Salvation is not a box of goodies that you receive. It's not something that's handed to you. It's not a get-out-of-hell-free card. That's not what it's about. Salvation is about being grafted into a vine. Salvation is about being made a part of Christ's body. Salvation is about coming to share in all that Jesus is and all that he does. That's why Paul uses these words like with and in. Because he wants us to see that it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. And the only way we get any of these benefits is because we have been joined to him. Now it's interesting what he says here. And it really, at first glance, doesn't seem to match with our experience. Look in verse 6. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I don't very often feel like I am seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. So what is Paul talking about here? This seems a little bit crazy. This is true of us now. And this is one of those things that you and I have to come to believe as we understand the gospel. This is true of us now, but we don't see it in its full experience now. It's a little like the way we've described the kingdom. It's arrived. We experience some of the realities of it, but we're waiting and anticipating when the kingdom will be fully here. And that's what this is like as well. Our union with Christ brings certain realities into our lives. We have the Holy Spirit. We're united with him. We receive his power over sin. Those things are true, but we anticipate and we look forward to 
And we wait for when this will be a full reality in the future. But what this does mean, it means that right now you do have access to the power of the Holy Spirit. To Christ's authority over sin in your life. You don't have to live enslaved to sin anymore if you're a believer because you've been united to Christ. Because you have the ability through the work of Christ to overcome the corruption that is in your heart through the Holy Spirit. You are free now to live a new lifestyle because of this reality. So all of this love, this mercy that brings God to work in our lives, to make us alive, to unite us with Christ, all of this has a goal and a purpose to it. That's our third description here. Every person in this room has been dead to sin, dead in sin. If you're a believer, you have been made alive with Christ. And all of that is for the purpose of making you an exhibit of grace. God has loved us, he's made us, and he's united us with Christ for this purpose. One author described verses 7 through 9 this way. Throughout time and eternity, the church, this society of pardoned rebels, is designed by God to be the masterpiece of his goodness. This is where we're headed. You and I will be exhibits of grace for all of eternity. Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You and I are like the painting that shows the genius of the artist. We're like the symphony that displays the skill of the composer. God has done this work in us and bestowed his grace upon us so that we can exalt his grace for all of eternity. And the reason for that is because when you see how we started in verses 1 to 3, when you grasp that description of life before Christ... There is no explanation for being united with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. How in the world does that happen? How do we move from being a mob bent on our own destruction to being seated with Christ in the heavenly places? How can that be? It's only by grace. It's only by sheer goodness and kindness and undeserved favor. And verse 8 is the explanation of verse 7. We're going to be exhibits of grace for all of eternity. Why? Because of verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. We will be exhibits of grace for all eternity because this whole thing started and is sustained by grace. It's all about God's grace toward us. It's a little like the child who was adopted often. And who grew up to be a world-renowned and successful surgeon. That child will always be an example of the power of adoption to reform and to change a life. That's a little like what happens with us. Our whole change began, our life began through grace. And so we will always be exhibits of grace throughout all eternity because of the way it began. At this point, though, you have to ask the question, I think, if you're reading through this, 
how do you get access to this grace? I mean, it's obviously all about Christ, but how do I become a partaker of this? I mean, this seems unbelievable that this reversal of fortune can happen based on the love and mercy and grace of God. But what, what puts me in a place of connecting with this grace? Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's the connection point. It's faith alone. That's the only thing that connects you to this grace. It's the instrument by which you and I become recipients of God's grace. I want you to read a paragraph. Uh, I'm going to read it to you by one theologian that I think is really helpful in stating this and explaining it. All right. I'll read it to you. It's a little long. As one has aptly and truly stated the case, it is not faith that saves, but faith in Jesus Christ. Strictly speaking, it is not even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. Faith unites us to Christ in the bonds of abiding attachment and entrustment. And it is this union which ensures that the saving power, grace, and virtue of the Savior become operative in the believer. And here's what faith is. The specific character of faith is that it looks away from itself and finds its whole interest and object in Christ. He is the absorbing preoccupation of faith. So faith looks away from self to Christ. And that's one of the reasons we exalt Christ this morning through this passage. It's all about him. It's about his work. It's about what he has done. And you and I are united and joined to that work as we look away from self and enjoy him and see his beauty and see his glory. But it's so crazy That despite all of that and all of that grace, every human heart has a tendency to want to take credit for this thing. And that's why Paul says what he says in verse 8. It almost seems out of place because we've been talking about grace and God doing the work and God's mercy and his goodness and rescuing this society of rebels, right? But look, he has to say this in verse 8 because of the tendency of every human heart. Look, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's almost unbelievable that he would have to insert that in there. It's like, come on, Paul, give me a break. After seeing all of this, really? Am I really going to try to claim credit for this? But that is the very nature of sin. We aren't sane people. We don't think clearly all the time. And even after salvation, and this is what trips us up, I think, so much. Even after salvation, we sometimes imagine that we can be good enough to please God. Or righteous enough, or special enough, or cool enough, or whatever enough that it is. And Paul says this here because it's his way of reinforcing this gospel of grace and reminding you, listen... This is not about you. You didn't have anything to do with this. It's not your doing. I mean, it's a little like a a football fan who is bragging about his team winning as if he had something to do with his team winning. I mean, I can enjoy the game. I can wear the shirt. I can get excited when they win, but come on. 
I have about as much to do with my football team winning as I do with the weather patterns here. Which is to say nothing. Look at verse 9. It's not a result of works. It's not a result of human efforts. So that no one may boast. We don't get the credit for it. It's not our doing. It's all about God. It's all about Christ. And this redirects our attention back to Christ, even in our daily lives, even in our walk with the Lord. Stop trying to take credit for it. Stop trying to earn God's favor. Instead, turn back your attention on the one who you are united with through grace. Look to him. Enjoy him. Delight in him. That's what salvation means. So we're all born dead. God, because of his great love, made us alive in order to shower grace on us. He did this by uniting us to Jesus Christ so that we are joined with him through faith. And he gives us all that Jesus has and all that Jesus is. We have access to all of that. It is ours. But that's not the end. Of this passage. We don't secure our salvation by human effort or by works, but if you have been changed like this, if you are dead and you've been made alive, then everything about the functional daily existence of your life must change. And that brings us to our last description we're created to work. We're dead in sin. Now we're alive with Christ. We're exhibits of grace, both now and in eternity. And all of that works itself out in our daily life because we were created to be different. We were created, made alive in order to work. Look at the first part of verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, let me explain this a little bit to you here, okay? You see the word workmanship there, all right? You also see the word created there. Both of those give us the idea of almost like a craftsman making something, okay? All right, and that's, that's the picture that's given here. And Paul's drawing our attention to these two words, to workmanship and to us being a creation, because he wants you and I to think of ourselves as already a part of the new creation. Okay? Now, you know this biblically. There's the old creation and there's the new creation. Those are two distinct realms. The old creation, which you were a part of, we talked about that earlier, and the new creation. The Bible describes Jesus as the first fruits of the new creation. And so he rises from the dead. He gets a new body, which is what our bodies one day will be like. And he enters the new creation. He is an example. He is the forerunner. He's the first one that enters the new creation. His his resurrection inaugurates that. It brings it into existence. And so at the moment of salvation, you and I are made alive. What that means is we enter into this new creation, spiritually speaking. Now, the glory of the gospel is that one day, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 
our physical bodies will enter into that new creation as well, just like Christ did. And we'll receive new bodies that are fit for that realm and fit to dwell with God for all of eternity. But what Paul is describing here when he uses the words workmanship and created is that you and I, spiritually speaking, have entered into this new creation now. That's what happens when you are united with Christ because what happens to him happens to you and I. And the goal of that new realm The culture, if you will, if we're talking about kingdom outposts, the culture of that new realm, that new creation is for its people to do good works. They live a different kind of lifestyle. Those who have entered the new creation are fundamentally different from those of the old creation. Look at the way Paul bookends this passage. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but look at verse 2. Verse 1, let's start there. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So your walk is your lifestyle. It's your pattern of living. So in verses 1 to 3, he says, you were walking this way. Now look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what does that tell us? Everything is changed about your walk when you enter the new creation. That's how God intended it to be. Now, I'll put this as simply as I can here. A person who is alive does not act like a dead person. If that's the change that took place, if we were dead and we were a part of this mob heading toward destruction, when you are made alive, you do not act like a dead person anymore. No person who is alive climbs back into a casket and lives there all day and hangs out there. When you are given life, when you are alive, you're active. And the type of life that you and I have received is a life that is given by grace. And so, therefore, we extend that grace to other people and we act in kindness and, and goodness And grace and love to others. So what Paul would say here is. Don't claim to be made alive. To be a part of the new creation. To be Christ's workmanship. And then go back to the mob. In verses 1 to 3. Now understand. That the, the old man hangs on. And tries to corrupt us and tries to trip us up and tries to wreak havoc in our lives. But the reality is if you're made alive, you have a new nature. And you pursue all the things that that Paul would describe later in Ephesians. To walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And so verses 1 to 10 give us this message here. Four descriptions of every believer. This is, I think, the heart of... What we got in the Reformation. We were dead in sin. We have been made alive with Christ. We are exhibits of grace through faith. And you and I are created to work. We're created to live differently. So this is the message that makes up the core of our message as a kingdom outpost. I mean, this is the heartbeat of what we share and what we do. And it has massive implications for how we live life. 
And we have to keep this message central. And we have to keep talking about this. We have to keep thinking about it. And we have to keep sharing it. This has to remain central in the life of our church and in our own lives individually. God rescues sinners by his grace through faith for good works. Let's pray. Father, these are amazing truths. I I can't, my tongue cannot describe these things well enough. Our hearts should burst when we hear these things. And yet we're weak, we're sinful. We don't always respond appropriately, but we ask for your Holy Spirit to work in us, work in me, Lord. Help me to see the beauty and the glory of your grace and of what you've done. Help us to understand where we were before you. Help us to feel that deeply. And then help us to grasp the sheer favor that you have shown us. You have made us alive. You have united us with Christ. And for all eternity, we will be exhibits of your grace. And so I pray that we would respond to that even now and act like members of the new creation. We would live out the culture of the kingdom now. Strengthen us to do that. Give us the ability to do that. And it's all based on your grace. Verse 10 says that you prepared these works beforehand. It's even your goodness to bring us to a point where we can work in this manner and in this way. Thank you for your love. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.